to be in season and out of season, and uh, probably today is going to be one of those out of season <laughs> days for me, uh, but uh, nonetheless, we're here, uh, we're ready to go, and so I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, and specifically at verses 33 through 36 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one there in the back of the pew for you. Uh, We have a text that's before us that should sound a little bit familiar to you if you've been with us for some time. In fact, the metaphor that Jesus used here in our text was used about three chapters back in verse 16 of Luke chapter 8. But although this metaphor that Jesus is going to use here is the same, the meaning of it is slightly a bit different, and that is because of the context in which it's delivered. Just as a real estate, real estate agent might tell you that a house's value is based on location, 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 uh, we, when it comes to Bible interpretation, we must also say to ourselves, context, 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 because a biblical text without a context can be a pretext. It would be very easy for us to just read this in a way and understand it just because of the way Jesus used it previously. But in a moment, I hope to show you that it has a slightly different meaning, a slightly different understanding than what we studied earlier in Luke. But nonetheless, we've got a couple parable-like statements uh, by our Lord that have great implications for us to consider. In fact, if you happen to have a red-letter edition of the Bible there with you, you'll see that Jesus really has a lot of things for us to consider from this point all the way up to chapter 23. And so these are the words that came from the lips of Jesus himself. And we are going to be confronted week after week with propositional truth from the mouth of the one who is full of grace and truth. So it's not like we can just study these verses, dissect them, understand them, and we kind of check a box and walk away. Because just as Jesus' first century hearers would have been confronted with the truth and have to examine themselves as to whether they were abiding the truth that he gave to them and spoke to them, we too today need to examine ourselves just as if we're hearing from the Lord Himself. And so we need to most certainly understand them, but we need to apply them. We need to live them. These aren't just some things here today that we need to consider in a trivial manner. These are not insignificant verses for us to look at, but these are things that we need to look deeply at because they are things that deal with life and death. And as we're going to see in our text this morning, when Jesus says to watch out, we need to be very sober-minded and very circumspect about what he's saying here. We need to carefully consider what he's saying and examine ourselves and heed the warning of watch out. So I want to begin by reading our text together in Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. If you're able to stand with me for a moment for the reading of God's word... I want to invite you to do so. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 33. God's inerrant word says this, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it nourishes our soul and instructs us. Lord, help our hearts to be changed today from what we hear. Help our hearts to be uh, just full of the greatness and grandeur of what your Son has accomplished for us and who you are. God, help our ears to be attentive to what you have to say to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One thing, more interesting things about parables is that you'll never find anyone else in the New Testament teaching by way of parables besides Jesus. And why is that? Because it was typically a means of judgment. Peter never taught in a parable. Paul never taught in a parable, even when he would go and travel into all the many cities that he would go into. But only Jesus ever taught in parables, and we only find them in the synoptic gospels. Remember that word means viewed the same. Those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are always confined, these parables, to the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because they are a means of judgment. And so as I I mentioned earlier, when we read those verses, most of us have sort of this vague familiarity with this parable of the lamp on a lampstand because Jesus used this exact same parable, or this metaphor rather, in Luke 8.16 when he said, No one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. And so when we compare that to the one from chapter 8, to the one that we have before us today, we see that in both cases, Jesus is really showing the absurdity of lighting a lamp and then covering it or hiding it. This much is very clear to us as we read it. Lighting a lamp and putting it under a basket or covering it up is just something you wouldn't do. It's uh, maybe sort of like black licorice or grape nuts. It just doesn't make sense, right? But if you light a lamp and then you cover it up and you put a mat over top of it, it's just not something anyone would do. You are restricting the intended purpose of lighting a lamp, and that is for the purpose of illumination, so that all would be able to see. And so what Jesus was teaching in chapter 8 is, is that those who hear the word of God and those who receive the word of God are not just to keep the word all to themselves. Just like a lamp is to be lit and put to good use, so should the disciples put the gospel to good, good use. It's not merely just to be heard and in in, in resonating in their minds, but it should be spoken from their lips and it should be seen in their lives to those around them. Because right before that, If you'll remember, he gave them the parable of the good soils and the the bad soils and the rocky soils and so forth, right? And the good soil was the one that bared what? Fruit, right? But that's not the case here in our text today. In fact, as I read through this text, I, I have to admit to you that in my own understanding and trying to figure out what he was saying here, because when you read through this at first glance, 
this seems to be almost as if it's its own separate vignette, right? Its own separate scene in the life of Jesus. Like it's sort of isolated from what was going on before it. But the venue hasn't changed yet. Jesus hasn't moved on from talking to these people yet. That doesn't happen until verse 37. But also when we take a look at it, like I said, in the greater context... Then we start to get a picture of what he's saying to the crowd that seems to be really increasing in their size, but not so much increasing in their understanding of who Jesus is. Because if you remember from verse 14 on, we've been introduced to three groups. First, we had the antagonists, those who were hostile to Jesus. They ascribed the miracle that Jesus had done in a man that was mute as being satanic in origin. And Jesus really just kind of, he destroys their reasoning as being irrational and unreasonable by asking them, why on earth would Satan cast out a demon by a power of Satan? It just doesn't make sense. The mute man, he couldn't praise God. And now, why would Satan be behind such a miracle to allow that to happen? Secondly, we were introduced to this woman in verse 27 who burst out in praise about the mother of Jesus. She, she calls Mary someone who should be truly blessed because she birthed and nursed Jesus. And so Jesus uses this as a, a teachable moment. And he says to the woman, he says, The truly blessed are not those who have a physical relationship with me, but those who have a spiritual relationship to me by hearing the word of God and doing it. In other words, those who are going to find their greatest enjoyment, their greatest satisfaction in life, those who will find the most lasting pleasure and happiness will be those who hear the word of God and they obey it. You won't find it in your parents or your possessions or your profession. You're only going to find it in the person of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the last group we saw, we had the skeptics those who sort of profess to want to believe that Jesus was the Christ, if only he would show them one more sign, right? We said that if Jesus would rearrange the stars in the sky and they would spell out, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they would say, wow, that's kind of cool. Can you show us another one? They weren't really looking for confirmation about who Jesus was. This was basically a way for them to be able to kind of look at Jesus and blame him for their unbelief because he hadn't given them enough evidence. But in verses 29 through 32, Jesus doesn't respond to this sign seeker. He doesn't give them another sign. He doesn't fulfill their request, and it's denied because of the attitude of their heart. Because if they had actually come to him with, and, and showed the same level of interest that the uh, and repentance that the Ninevites had to when Jonah preached, and had they been diligent enough to seek the truth like the Queen of Sheba when she went to see Solomon, then they wouldn't have needed to have a sign when someone greater than Jonah was before them or somebody wiser than Solomon was in their midst. And so if we're going to break those down into a connection with our text this morning, we have those who thought the light of Jesus was demonic, We have those who were dazzled by the light, and we had those who professed to see so little light that all they wanted was another sign. But the problem was in their spiritual vision. Their spiritual vision was so skewed because of unbelief that they couldn't see the bright light of Jesus standing in front of them. 
So that's why when we come to verse 33 of our text, and he uses this same metaphor, which we have seen before, and he says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. In other words, what he's saying to them, he's like, Look, fellas, I'm not hiding under a rock somewhere. I'm not hiding in a cave. I'm not in the light of the world uh, hiding in a room somewhere. I'm right here shining in front of you. So don't come to me and tell me that you don't want to believe because I won't give you another sign. The reason that you won't believe in me is because of the darkness of your hearts. Now think about how he didn't go and preach in a corner somewhere or in some secret place. He didn't preach and teach in obscurity. He went to the synagogues. He went to the public places. He was in villages and everywhere in between. And he did it in such a way that was, uh, it was available for worldwide observation. But because their hearts weren't eagerly seeking the truth like the Queen of Sheba and soft enough to repent like the people of Nineveh, they couldn't see that they had the light of the world right before them. And so when Jesus uses this metaphor back in 8, it was for the sake of evangelism. But here... Jesus is using this of himself in terms of revelation. It's like in chapter 8, the disciples were to be conduits of the light of Christ. But here, Jesus is saying that he is indeed the source of that light. But they rejected him. John 1, 4-5 reinforces that when he writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness... And the darkness did not comprehend it. And this is true even today. People aren't packing in churches across this nation. There isn't standing room only in most houses of worship. You can look around right here today even. You're more apt to see a greater response on the soccer fields in your area on a Sunday morning than you are to see churches packed out. Now, why is that? Because the light has already come, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. People don't want to have to admit they're morally bankrupt. They don't want to have to deny themselves. They don't want to have to put to death the deeds of their flesh. They don't want to have to depend upon anyone anyone else's righteousness because they think they've got enough of their own. In fact, if you ask most people, they'll tell you that they are pretty good and that hopefully they've done enough good over evil uh, so that God will let them into heaven when they die. That seems to be the mantra of anyone who claims to believe in God, or maybe they call him the man upstairs, right? Now, how do I know that? Because I was one of them. I did the same thing. I said, if Jim Baker can make it, I can make it, right? No, no. No, it's not between Jim Baker and God and me. It's between me and God. The world is full of them. But as we look at the rejection of these sign seekers, it's not on account because the light was concealed. And that's really the point of the statement that Jesus is making in verse 33 because it's self-evident. You don't take a lamp and put it somewhere where it's going to be hidden, but you'll put it up on a vantage point so that it will be seen by all. The reason that these sign seekers from verse 16 and verse 29, the reason that they still remain in darkness 
and do not accept him as Messiah is not because of him hiding the light of his revelation from from them, but it can only be explained because of the wickedness of their hearts. And so as we look at verse 34 and the metaphor there, that is the essential meaning of what Jesus is explaining to them. Verse 34, look at it there. It says, the eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So this is a pretty straightforward metaphor that takes us from the physical to the spiritual. The eye here is the vehicle of perception. And the eye is almost like synonymous for the heart, right? The very core of your being. But very simply, if your eye is healthy, it allows you to make full use of the light and your body will be healthy. And if your eye is bad, you won't know where you're going and your body is going to suffer the consequences. It's like walking barefoot in a 10 to 12 year old boy's room in the dark with Legos on the floor. You're not going to see where you're going. It's painful, right? Think about how many of us used our eyes this morning in getting ourselves up and out of bed and dressed, right? Hopefully all of us did that in some capacity, right? But we might have had to grab some food or maybe we took some coffee before we came to church or even we drove here. We, we hopefully saw our Bible sitting on the table on the way out the door before we left and we grabbed it. But we used our eyes to get done what we needed to do. Our eyes kept us from knocking our heads on the car door or whatever when we got into it. It helped us from tripping on the walkway on our way out. Our eyes tell us where we should step and what our hand should grab and not grab. That maybe we shouldn't eat that brown banana with the bugs flying around it, right? Our eyes tell us to avoid that barricade that's coming up to us on the highway. But spiritually speaking, when we look to Christ, our eyes will know of our daily need for Him. We will see the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us. When we look to Christ, we're going to see the beauty of His holiness. When we look to Christ, we're going to see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. When we see the wonders of His grace abounding, we will see His comforts and His mercy when we're suffering. We'll see the majesty and the power of His hand in creation. And we will see His patience and His forbearance, not only with this world that hates Him, but with ourselves as we're conformed to the image of Christ. And likewise... When your eye is bad or literally evil, then your body will be full of darkness. Spiritually speaking, you're going to have no hope beyond death. You will have no comfort about your eternal destiny. Your life will be devoid of actual purpose and meaning. You won't see your need for the intervention of Jesus in your life. You'll have nothing and no one upon whom you can cast your unrepentant sin upon. You will be building your life as a house that has a foundation of sand. And your triplet gods of luck, fate, and karma, and that's little g, they won't be seen by you as what they really are. Cruel, arbitrary, and devoid of any real meaning. So what do you need to do to be able to see Jesus for who he is? 
you need a pair of glasses. You need a pair of glasses. And the Holy Spirit is very much like a pair of glasses. Maybe you've read some of the Bible and you've thought to yourself, I just don't understand all of this. I don't know who Jesus is. It's too confusing with all of this blood and sacrifice and the cross and chaos. Or, or maybe you're looking for someone to kind of help convince you uh, out of your doubt and into the faith. And someone who has that one definitive argument that you need to believe in Jesus Christ. Guess what? No one has that argument for you. What you really need is the glasses. What you need is the Holy Spirit. And who gives you those? God has those. And He gives those to whomever will repent and believe on His Son. So then in verse 35, Jesus issues a warning. Much as he did back in verse 18 of chapter 8 and telling us to take care how we listen. Here in verse 35 he says, Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. And so for those who think themselves to be in the light, and when in reality they are actually in the darkness, this is who this is for. This is really a call for self-examination, because it's a very strong word here, scopeo, and it means to note carefully. It means to pay attention. It means to be concerned about. And so when Jesus says this, we better prick our ears up. We better pay attention to what he's saying here. This is for those people who are just going through the motions of being a Christian. This is for someone who knows a bit about Jesus and may even attend church and they uphold the Bible as the word of God and they affirm the grace of God and they have a deep respect for the things of God. But he considers sin of small consequence. Attendance and participation of those things seem to become a superstitious trust in them. Charles Spurgeon said this about the person in this verse. He said, quote, He regards attendance upon public worship as a substitute for inward religion. He looks upon membership with a church as a certificate of salvation. He may be foolish to speak of baptism as an ordinance whereby he was made a member of Christ and a child of God, and the supper of the Lord as a saving ordinance or even as a sacrifice for the quick and the dead. When the instructive symbols are perverted into instruments of priestcraft, the light is turned into darkness. And so this should hit home to you and I as believers this morning to examine ourselves. What are you banking your salvation upon? Are you looking upon the amount of your giving and the offering plates as confirmation that you're in the faith? Are you looking upon your membership in a church as a validation that you are on the narrow path? Are you looking at the fact that you may have a a Bible degree or some sort of seminary training? Are you looking at the fact that you attended church this week and so you and God are good for another seven days until you come back? Or are you trusting in the crucified and risen Savior? Can you sing with confidence and without reservation the hymn lyrics that say, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ my righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Are you trusting alone in Christ for your salvation? Is that whom you rest your confidence upon? If you try to do it in anything else, you are on sinking sand. Take heed to these words. What do you have your eye upon as confidence that you are in the light of Jesus Christ? The writer of Hebrews, he bids you to fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith in Hebrews 12.2. Paul implores you to forget what's behind and reach forward to what lies ahead and to press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Jesus Christ in Philippians 3.14. And Stephen, even Stephen, as he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, he gives testimony to us and he serves as an example to us that while suffering, that we should look intently into heaven at Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father. So take heed today that the light in you is not actually darkness Cast yourself wholly upon Christ. Look not to your works, but to the work of Christ on the cross. And then lastly, in verse 36, he says, If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. This is a glorious promise from our Lord, and it reflects a spiritually healthy person. For those who are willing to repent and who turn from their sin that so easily entangles us and blinds us, the gift of sight opens up our eyes to see things with great clarity. Think for a moment with me about the four most basic questions of life and how they are answered in the light of the knowledge of Christ, right? Where did we come from? Why are we here? How do we determine what's right and what's wrong and what happens when we die? Those are the four most basic questions of life. And all four of those questions of life are answered coherently and consistently in the gospel of Jesus Christ through his word. Where did we come from? We are created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb with all of our our hairs numbered by our Heavenly Father. Why are we here? We are here to glorify God, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we are to do for the glory of God. We are to proclaim His excellencies to the nations and to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How do we determine what's right and what's wrong? We are to obey his commandments and do what God has said and to abstain from those things for which he has forbidden us. And what happens when we die as believers? One day in the future, we're going to meet our Lord in the air with a trump and a shout and be resurrected with him and enjoying him eternally, eternally in our heavenly home that he has prepared for us. Having our spiritual eyes open to the gospel illuminates us to the truth of Jesus Christ that is found in his word. So this morning, the question I have for you is what or whom are you trusting? 
Are you banking on your achievements or your possessions? What are you really living for? What food sustains your life? What fountain of life and hope and delight do you drink from? We are meant to long supremely for the Lord Jesus himself, for the giver and not the gifts. Are you basking in the light of Christ? Or have you been walking in darkness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. How it's rich and it's nourishing. It causes us to examine ourselves. And Father, I just pray if there's any person here that has been depending upon their works, that they would only trust in the work of Christ on the cross. Father, help us to honor you. Help us to live for you. Help us to desire you above all things in this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.